Good morning. How's everybody this morning? Wow. We got a woo. If you have a Bible this morning, I encourage you to take that out. We're going to continue our time in this series, True or False. And this morning we are talking about angels and demons are make-believe. Angels and demons are make-believe. We're going to be in 2 Kings to start, chapter 6, verses 8 through 17. If you need a Bible, slip a hand up. We've got some ushers coming down the aisles. You can borrow one or keep it if you need one. We encourage everyone to join us in, in the Word of God. We'll have some scripture on screen here a little bit as well. Thanks for being here this morning. Thanks for those of you joining us online as well. Some people say, I make it a rule to only believe what I understand. Today I'll be talking about the spiritual world, particularly angels and demons, and just a heads up parents, um, again, I'll talk about angels and demons. It won't be that graphic, it won't be that scary, but I just want you to know uh, ahead of time. While some say I only believe what I understand, others will say I only believe what I can see. If we say I only believe what I can see, then we have neglected to understand that there is a spiritual realm all around us that is as real as the person sitting next to you right now. If our physical reality had a zipper and you were able to unzip it and take a peek into the spiritual world, all of us I think would be awestruck and absolutely blown away by what we would see and experience. We would stand gazing into the unfamiliar reality of the spiritual world. What you would see would be indescribable and yet beautiful. A little scary, yet peaceful. Unfamiliar, and yet oddly familiar. Second Kings 6, verses eight through 17. Now the king of Aram was at war with Israel. After conferring with his officers, he said, I will set up my camp in such and such a place. The man of God sent word to the king of Israel, beware of passing that place because the Armanians are going down there. So the king of Israel checked on the place indicated by the man of God. Time and again, Elisha warned the king so that he was on his guard in such places. This enraged the king of Aram. He summoned his officers and demanded of them, tell me which of us is on the side of the king of Israel? None of us, my lord and king, said one of the officers, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the very words you speak in your bedroom. Go find out where he is, the king ordered, so I can send men and capture him. The report came back, he is in Dothan. Then he sent horses and chariots and a strong force there. They went by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God got up and went out early the next morning, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Oh no, my Lord, what shall we do? The servant asked. Elisha was, was a prophet at this point in history and the Israelites were, they were on the move. And while the Israelites moved about through the wilderness, they encountered people who were against them time and time again. And in this passage, we see that the king of Aram and his people were at war with them. 
They were against them. He called in his officials and said, let's go camp in this certain place because we know that the Israelites are gonna have to go through here and pass by and then we will defeat them. In verses nine and 10, Elisha was referred to as the man of God. He sent word to the Israelites informing them to to the enemy's plan. So the king listened and they were able to stay out of harm's way. And then verses 11 through 14, the king of Aram was, I guess you could say, was ticked off. Every plan that he came up with, the Israelites seemed to have this, this insider information. And the king was informed that there was no traitor in his own camp, but that it was Elisha who seemed to know all of the plans ahead of time. And so the king sent for him. We gotta take care of this problem. Verse 15, the next morning, Elisha's servant woke up, went outside, and he, and he opened the door, and there was this massive army that surrounded the entire city. And he responded as any of us would. Oh my, right? And he turned to Elisha and he said, you who gets paid the big bucks, what are we gonna do in this situation? Like we, we're gonna be overrun, overtaken. And then we come to verse 16 and 17 says this, don't be afraid. The prophet answered, those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Don't be afraid. There are wall-to-wall horses and chariots surrounding us. Do you not see them? And what do you mean those who are with us are more than those who are with them? And what I'm gonna share here is is just absolutely mind-blowing. And then at just the right time, Elisha prays in verse 17. And Elisha prayed, open his eyes, meaning the servant. Open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he looked and he saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. In the midst of his panic, the servant's eyes were opened to the spiritual realm and he saw for himself the great hosts of angels, heroes and chariots of fires and horses and completely surrounded Elisha and God's army of heavenly hosts were far greater in number, just as he had said than the physical horses and the chariots that King Aram had sent to capture Elisha with. And the servant's reality was unzipped. And he was able to see for just a moment into the spiritual realm. Today, I wanna take you to an unfamiliar area, a realm that is not normally on our radar screen. And while it might be unfamiliar, it's, it's in a very exciting realm. And I wanna begin, first of all, by talking about angels. I wanna talk about their design and their origin. So angels are created spiritual beings with moral judgment, with high intelligence, but without physical bodies. Angels have not always existed like God. They were created and were created right along with the rest of the universe. In Colossians 1.16, and I'll use this scripture two different times, it says this, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, things that are visible and invisible. 
whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. The reason we know they have moral judgment is because scripture teaches us that some of them, when they sinned, they fell from their high positions, and we'll get to that in just a second. So their high intelligence is seen throughout scripture when they speak to humans and when they sing praises to God. Because angels are spirits or spiritual creatures, they do not ordinarily have physical bodies. Therefore, they cannot usually be seen by us unless God gives us the ability to see them. They're referred to in scripture by other names such as sons of God, holy ones, spirits, watchers, and so on. They're only one of a kind of the heavenly beings. Others include include cherubim, maybe you've heard that name, who had the task of guarding the, the entrance of the Garden of Eden or seraphim who were only mentioned in Isaiah when when it's talked about when they would bow down and cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was, who is, and is, is to come. We also learn about what's called living creatures. These creatures are mentioned in Revelation and are described as surrounding the throne and they're bowing and worshiping. There seems to be a rank among the angelic world with Michael as the archangel and the one who rules or who has authority over the others. We know from scripture that angels have great power. They're referred to as you mighty ones and also powers and authorities. And though they have power, they are not all powerful like God. They are limited, but able to do battle in the spiritual realm on our behalf. The Bible also teaches us that while we are here on this earth, the entire human race are made lower than the angels. However, once the Lord returns for us and we are ushered into eternity, into God's eternal presence, we will be raised to a higher position than the angels. And in fact, we will one day be the judges of angels. So they're created beings with moral judgment and great intelligence but what do they do? What do angels do? They serve us. Hebrews 1.14 says this. Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? They serve us not as a slave to a master, but in the sense of ministering to us. Angels also remind us that the unseen world is real. While it is easy to lean on the side of unbelief when it comes to that which we cannot see, because we cannot see it, we think, well, I just don't believe it. The Bible talks about angels all throughout, from cover to cover, they're talked about. They are an example to us in their obedience and in their worship to God. The thousands upon thousands, maybe millions upon millions of angels who remained with God and who refused to disobey and sin against God are said to cry out, again, holy, holy. Imagine this in eternity right now, angels crying out. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And the one that I personally think is is really cool 
And that is that they're to protect us. Psalm 91, verse 11 and 12 says this, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all of your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. So the big question often is, do people have their own guardian angels? Like, do you have your own personal guardian angel? Do I have my own personal guardian angel? Scripture leaves us with little doubt that God sends angels for our protection, but do we, each one of us, as some people suggest, have our own little guardian angel? While there are a couple of references to angels guarding specific people in scripture, it'd be difficult to kind of draw that conclusion that we each have our own specialized guardian angel. It might be better to think of angels playing zone defense rather than man to man. You think of it like that. Regardless, angels have the task of protecting us and watching over us. What about our relationship with them? There's something else that we must know about angels outside of their normal activity of when they are guarding and protecting us. They join us in our worship. When we are worshiping the almighty God. I can't say with absolute certainty right now, but it's quite possible that there is an angel in our presence right now that you cannot see, worshiping right along with us. Why? Because scripture teaches us that they love to worship God. Even though we cannot see or hear evidence of this, this heavenly worship, when I read this again and I was studying again this week, man, does it ever elevate my desire to worship God and increase my reverence and fill my heart even more with more joy, knowing that angels, whether they're here right now or they're near, they join us in worshiping our great God. But that's not all. We're also taught that angels can sometimes take on human form apparently to make, if you could think of it like um, inspection visits, kind of like a restaurant critic who disguises himself and visits a new restaurant, you know? Hebrews 13 teaches us this. Hebrews 13, one through three, says this. Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. For by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. We see all throughout scripture that angels on occasions have made an appearance on earth in a physical way. It's absolutely mind-blowing that, that one day you or I might be in the presence of an angel and we wouldn't even know it. I mean, I married an angel. <laughs> Ever since she met me, she decided to stay in the physical form. <laughs> you have to get your own angel. I'm certain she would say the same thing about me. No need to ask her, just trust me. 
we've all heard stories. Maybe I can't assume that. Many of us have heard stories. When someone had a conversation with another and then when they turned around, the person somehow just wasn't there. They just vanished. Now, don't go around having conversations with people all the while thinking to yourself, am I talking to an angel right now? Like, don't let that mess with you because here's the deal. There is a 99.999999% chance you're not talking with an angel. But to quote a famous movie, so you're telling me there's a chance, right? (laughs) Maybe. What about demons? Let's talk about their design and their origin. Back to Colossians 1.16, for by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. So both the Old and the New Testament affirm the reality and the existence of Satan and his demons. His original state prior to his fall was an exalted position in the presence of God. The original position and his fall are mentioned, if you wanna jot down other references in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. We know what took place sometime between Genesis 1 when, when God looked at all creation and said that it was good. And Genesis 3 when Satan is seen in the form of a snake in the garden with Adam and Eve. We know it happened somewhere in there. Every New Testament writer as well as Christ himself makes reference to him 25 times. Satan has intellect. He can plan a course of action for deception. He is knowledgeable of scripture. And that tells us a little bit about the origin or the existence of Satan, but what about demons? Let's begin with the question, where do they come from? I'm gonna share with you a couple of options. The first option I wanna share with you is what I guess I would call the traditional view. Traditionally, we have been taught that when Lucifer, uh, Satan, rebelled against God, he fell from his place of prominence and led with him a host of lower ranking angels. So Lucifer is noted as the ruler of the demons. Let me read to you Revelation 12, three through nine. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and 10 horns and seven crowns on its head. Its tail swept a third of the stars, fallen angels, out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth, speaking of Jesus, so that it might devour her child the moment it was born. Then war broke out in heaven Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth 
and his angels with him. So tradition and passages like Revelation 12 tells us that these are the third of the angels called fallen angels who were cast out of heaven along with their leader, Lucifer, because of their prideful rebellion. But let's back up just a little bit to Genesis 6, 1 through 4, when the demonic world began, where it all began. In Genesis 6, 1 through 4, it says this. When human beings began to increase in number on the earth, and daughters were born to them, so population's increasing, daughters were born, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be 120 years. Verse four, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown which by the way means self-exalting. <clears throat> In these four verses, there is mention of the sons of God and Nephilim. The sons of God are traditionally known as the fallen angels who took notice of the earthly women and then procreated with them. The children born from that relationship are referred to as Nephilim, which means giants. Maybe you're familiar with that term, Nephilim. For this to even be possible, either the fallen angels probably either took on human form, as we read about in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, by the way, when the men wanted to have sex with the visiting angels, do you remember that story? and God kind of wiped Sodom and Gomorrah off the face of the earth. That's one possibility. Or the fallen angels possessed human men and they had relations with human women. Regardless of the method, the result was the same. Nephilim, giants of the land were born. And these Nephilim were known as extraordinary offspring with enhanced physical abilities, okay? So the Nephilim mentioned in Genesis six are hybrid. They're half angelic and they're half, I'm sorry, they're half human and they're half fallen angel. We also know from 2 Peter 2, 4 and Jude 6 that the fallen angels who sin by having relation with human women. So um, one of the arguments is, well, wait a minute, because uh, in those passages it talks about how demons are locked up that they're, they're held for um, hell, that they're all locked up under lock and key, okay? We know from 2 Peter 2, 4 and Jude 6 that the fallen angels who sinned by having a relationship with human women were cast into hell and are being held there in chains of darkness reserved for judgment. So does that mean there are no demons out and about today? It does not mean that. Remember, a third of the angels were cast out of heaven, but not all of them participated in this gross sin with human women producing Nephilim. 
Not all demons are under lock and key. Only those who participated in this gross rebellion, AKA the sons of God, fallen angels, having relationships with daughters of men incident. Leaving Satan himself and many of his demons loose, unlike the fallen angels who are imprisoned, the remaining fallen angels are free. Ha, but I thought just this morning, there are giants in the land after the flood. Where did they come from? You remember that? Like they're traveling around and they come to these different groups of people and like they come back and they report because they're like, wait a minute, there's giants in the land. Who are these guys then? Where did they come from? Because the Nephilim before the flood were wiped out. Yeah. Hmm. But was the demonic world wiped out? Is it possible that after the flood, round two, fallen angels, daughters, procreate, round two? Maybe. A non-traditional view. Someone in our congregation sent me an article that was quite fascinating. Some like Dr. Michael Heiser, who wrote the book, The Unseen Realm, Recovering the Supernatural Worldview of the Bible, propose or at least tease us with other possibilities other than the traditional view. But like the traditional view, his view uh, begins also in Genesis 6, one through four. He also uses other sources such as discoveries like clay tablets found in Mesopotamia and extra biblical writings like first Enoch to support his thinking. What did he find when using these additional sources? He found a parallel story that involved divine beings having relations with human women giving birth to hybrid children. He brings into view not just the Nephilim, but their children as well. They're called Anakim. They were known to be giant warlords who were associated with Sheol. You recognize that word? Hell, the place of the dead. Demons are the spirits of the disembodied offspring of the fallen angels and human women. This is his take. A spirit that remains on earth despite no longer having a physical body. So rather than demons being just fallen angels, like in the traditional view, some who are locked up and others who remain free, Heiser is suggesting that demons as we know them today are the disembodied spirits of the hybrid children of the fallen angels and the human women. It's possible. It cannot be derived explicitly from scripture and therefore like all extra biblical writings, though they can be um, enlightening, we should not hold them as absolute truth, but resources that stretch our thinking. They give us possibilities to think about by drawing upon historical resources. Okay, you got all that? What do they do? Well, 
Satan was the originator of sin. 1 John 3, 8 says, the one who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. We know that they oppose God. John 8, 44 and 45, you belong to your father, the devil, and you wanna carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Second Corinthians 4, 4. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. They oppose God. 24-7. But what about, what about us? They deceive people. So to understand deception, we see from the beginning in Genesis 2, when Satan, in the form of a serpent, so when he was cast, you know, he comes in the form of a serpent, he duped Eve into eating fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. How do the demons deceive Through mind games, through deception, through confusion. When deception appears to be truth, because you know that's what the evil one does all the time. He takes what is truth, flips it on its head. When deception appears to be truth, rebellion seems desirable. Keep in mind that prior to their fall, the fallen angels would have shared all of the common characteristics of God's faithful angels. When they joined Satan's rebel army, they perverted their created purpose. They know God as their creator, but denied his authority. They were ordained to be God's messengers, but they chose to deliver a message of evil instead. And so they are deceivers. And they work hard to deceive you. They tempt people. Demons are strongly associated with idolatry and immorality all throughout scripture. On multiple occasions, the Bible speaks about demon worship. The book of Proverbs juxtaposes the wisdom of God and obedience to him with immorality that leads to destruction. What is idolatry? Idolatry is loving something, whatever it may be, more than you love God. The temptation associated with idolatry and immorality is so strong that they are the only, this is kind of fascinating, the only two sins in the New Testament that we're told to flee. Not that any other sin is good, but specifically these two sins. 1 Corinthians 6.18 says, flee from sexual immorality. 2 Timothy 2.22 says, flee from your youthful lust. 1 Corinthians 10.14 says, flee from idolatry. They tempt us through those primary means, idolatry, the love of things more so than God, and immorality. They destroy people. 
They will do whatever is necessary to keep people out of eternity with God, to go as far as to blind people from seeing the truth of the gospel. Demons can possess unbelievers and can keep them in bondage. I have witnessed it firsthand. I have been a part of an exorcism in the parking lot of my last church. I won't go into the details, but there is no doubt in my mind this person was possessed with a demon or demons. The New Testament provides many examples of the effects of demon possession, convulsions, falling into fire and water, foaming at the mouth, gnashing of teeth, extraordinary strength. Ask a missionary from around the world. Many of them can tell you a story, if not multiple stories of people that they have encountered that have been demon possessed. Here's the good news. Demons cannot possess believers in Christ. Why? Because a believer in Christ is permanently indwelled with the Spirit of God. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 says, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not on your own. 1 John 4, 4, you dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. There is no mention of a believer in Christ being possessed by a demon in scripture. What about our relationship with them? I just got like one or two more minutes here. Because of Satan's rule over the earth, we constantly find ourselves in a spiritual battle. And let me go back here, spiritual battle. Trying to deceive us, trying to tempt us, trying to destroy us. We are instructed to put on the full armor of God with which we are protected and with which we do battle. Some of the armor, as you may know or may not know, is defensive and some of it is offensive. So to protect protect and to also engage. So like Satan, demons are spirit beings localized. So understand these things. Demons are spirit beings localized but not omnipresent. Intelligent but not all-knowing. Powerful but not omnipotent or all-powerful. So even though a believer cannot be demon-possessed, you need to understand this, if you're a believer in Christ, they certainly can be a bother. They certainly can oppress, they certainly can influence believers. Demon possession is different than demon oppression and influence. If this were not true, then we would not be instructed as we are in Ephesians and James to resist. If you are a believer, you cannot be possessed, but you can be oppressed, you can be influenced, you can be nagged, bothered. Because scripture tells us he's out to steal, kill, and destroy. He is out to destroy you. He's out to destroy your marriage. He's out to destroy your life. 
they are as real as real can be. But a believer in Christ need not be afraid or worry about them. We just need to resist them when they decide to deceive, tempt, and influence us. I wanna close by reading Ephesians 6, 10 through 18. And I want you to hear because what Paul does here is he says, hey, you need to get dressed and you need to put on the armor of God to protect yourself and to engage in this battle because if you could unzipped reality, you would see right now, if we could just do that, if we could just unzipped reality and see what is happening around us right now, it would be mind blowing the battle that is raging. Ephesians 6, a final word. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all strategies of the devil. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies. It feels like it sometimes, doesn't it? That a lot of our battles are here. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Therefore, put on every piece of God's armor so you'll be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Then after the battle, you'll be standing firm. Stand your ground, verse 14, stand your ground, putting on the belt of truth, and the body armor of God's righteousness. So start with the truth, the word of God. Four shoes, put on the peace that comes from the good news so that you'll be fully prepared. In addition to all of these, hold up the shield of faith to stop the fiery arrows of the devil. Put on salvation as your helmet and take the sword of the spirit which is the word of God. Pray in the spirit at all times on every occasion. Stay alert and be persistent in your prayers for all believers everywhere. Would you stand? Uh, I wanna close with one thing and then we're gonna, I think, sing a couple more songs. I, I love this verse in James. He says this, and this is what we can leave with. Submit, or we could use the word humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and here's the promise, and he will flee from you. Amen?